on the record flips to the B-side. Good morning. I'm Mia Lobel, and you're listening to B-Side. This month's show is all about little things, everything from baby carrots to pint-sized rock stars. I write most of the songs for the band, and I've been writing songs since I was about five. We'll also learn what it's like to shop for clothing in the kids' section as an adult and hear about the preemie ward at Oakland Children's Hospital, as On the Record flips to the B-Side. Our B-Side mission this month had to be small, of course. We thought of playing miniature golf, building model trains, or taking a class on quark theory. In the end, though, we finally settled on the art of rice writing. Tamara Keith, Emily Gunnison, and I decided to try and write our names on grains of rice. We'd seen it before at kitschy art sales and flea markets, so how hard could it be? Our first stop was the bulk food section at our neighborhood market, Berkeley Bowl. In the bulk food section, they have oats, nuts, granola, dried fruit, and lots and lots of rice. Sweet white, wild blend, forbidden rice, arborio, which looks good. We decided to elicit the advice of some other shoppers. What do you think is the secret to writing on rice, if you were to, if you were to try it? Uh, it's a very small, fine-tip pen. You see, it really depends what you're going to cook, the rice you use, really. Like if you use the long grain, you know, it's more for like Spanish dishes, South American cooking, Mexican cooking. If you want to use the short grain, it's more Japanese because it's more gooey and they like that. But what if we're going to write on it? What do you mean if you're going to write on we're, it? We're going to write our names on it. If, if I was going to write my name on it, I think that they do that in some Asian countries. I guess I would get the, the long grain because it's a little longer and it has flatter surface. Good luck. <laughs> With that vote of confidence, we got our supplies weighed and priced. Seven cents for the country wild, four cents for arborio, and six cents for long grain white. It's not a cheap art, but it's reasonable. <laughs> it's lucrative, I guess, if, you, uh, if we know what we're doing. <laughs> our rice writing venture probably won't bring in the big bucks. But another small edible item has proven quite lucrative. Baby carrots. They're sweet, they're crunchy, and they come conveniently packaged and ready to eat at any supermarket. But have you ever thought about where they come from? Well, as Tamara Keith found out, it all started just east of Bakersfield in California's Central Valley at Grimway Farms' 600,000-square-foot baby carrot processing plant. Once upon a time, baby carrots were really just small carrots. Naturally, some carrots never make it to full size. And 10 years ago, the owners of Grimway Farms got the idea to start packaging those runts together. They were aptly called baby carrots. Before long, the bite-sized snack had become so popular that the company couldn't find enough miniatures to meet demand. So, Grimway had to start trimming down big carrots to make little ones. Now, most of the baby carrots in the world become babies, right here at the Grimway Farms processing plant in the southern San Joaquin Valley. They've even started growing certain carrots for the sole purpose of making babies. Grimway Vice President Kent Williams explains. They're longer, 
They're thinner. They're sweeter. They're more crunchy. Uh, they're more juicy carrots. So we want to appeal to all of the, the what we call the sensory values. Just outside the plant, semi-trucks pull up every couple of minutes to drop off small mountains of freshly picked carrots for processing. It's a lot of work, and you'll see as we go inside the plant. You see as we walk through, we're washing the carrots, get any impurities off, then we diameter size a carrot. If it's a big carrot, we don't want to use it for babies, we'll send it somewhere else. And then we go down the line, you'll see down here in a minute where we cut the carrot. After being chopped into two-inch pieces, the carrots are peeled and rounded off at the ends. Three to four babies come from each full-sized carrot. They are then sorted and resorted to make sure that what ends up in the grocery store is exactly the right size, shape, and color. Less than perfect babies are shipped to another plant and become carrot juice. This whole time, the carrots are being moved around the giant plant by gallons of water flowing through an intricate system of stainless steel canals. Williams and I come up on what looks like a waterfall of orange as hundreds of bite-sized carrots drop from one level of the plant to another. He calls it his Carrot River. Have you ever seen Willy Wonka the Chocolate Factory? He had his chocolate river. We have our carrot river. From here, we size a carrot, then it goes where we cool it, and then we go and we're going to package it next door. Each day, this plant pumps out about 90,000 bags of baby carrots to be gobbled up by people all over the country. Grimway Farms pretty much has a lock on the nation's baby carrot production. And in the company break room, smack in the middle of the lunchroom table, there's a five-pound bag of baby carrots for Grimway employees to munch on. I'll never get sick of carrots. Carrots my favorite vegetable by far. Anybody that works here at Grimway, it's a prerequisite. Carrots have to be your favorite vegetable. And apparently baby carrots have become a lot of people's favorite vegetable. The little carrots are credited with revolutionizing the fresh carrot industry. And that's where baby carrots come from. For B-Side, I'm Tamara Keith. What's up, Doc? After paying 33 cents for our long, short, and arboreal rice grains, the crew headed to Tamara's house to attempt to write our names on rice. Hello, Dad! Hello, Tamara. How are you? We figured finding the right tools would be essential to completing our task. Tamara's little brother, Donovan, is a budding artist, and he has lots of tools. Donovan, little brother. Tamara. Do you have any writing implements that we might be able to use for um, writing on rice? Writing on rice? I, ha- I don't think I have a soldering iron, and I don't think I have a really small pin, so I have no idea how we could write on rice. Do you have any ink? I have, yeah, I actually do have ink. We can go get it from the car, from the toolbox where the ink is kept. Give me some hockey gear. Okay, we've got India ink. Got a pen. This should get you started. We spread newspaper on Tamara's dining room table and sat down with our pen and ink, ready to draw. I felt like we were back in grade school, getting ready to make mosaics out of macaroni and construction paper. B-side crew member Katie Shroud 
spends a lot of time with the grade school crowd these days as part of her job working for the Age of Sail program at Hyde Street Pier in San Francisco. It's possibly the weirdest job I've ever had. Officially, I'm a full-time maritime history educator for the Age of Sail program at historic Hyde Street Pier. Unofficially, I'm a pretend sailor who teaches smaller pretend sailors how to do stuff on board a turn-of-the-century sailing ship, the C.A. Thayer. School groups arrive for a field trip. And so long as they're with us, it's 1906, just after the earthquake. The children are recruited to be a green hand crew on a quick trip up to Oregon for lumber. It's two in the afternoon, it's pouring down rain, and a field trip from Faria A Plus School in Cupertino has just arrived. Well, I want you to do this. When I say carry on, I want you all to shout out yes very loudly. Carry on. Yes! Now when I say carry on, I want you to shout the word I very loudly. Carry on. During their 20 hours on board the C.A. Thayer, the children are divided into five crews. The different crews learn how to do everything, from rowing a longboat to throwing a heaving line to making cornbread. The program's philosophy is to let the children, or lads as we call them, boys and girls, make their own choices, do their own work, and face the consequences of their own decisions. Uh, We get to lower a dory, which is a boat, and... We have to wash dishes after that. <laughs> wash dishes, take out the garbage, and clean. I asked the lads if they would want to be real sailors when they grew up. Um, no, because, like, I don't want to, like, stay away for, like, a year or something. And then I also don't want to sleep on the hard bunks. Um, I don't think I'm ready for it because I'm, like, I'm not, like, sure that I want to see um, puke on the ground everywhere. You saw puke on the ground last night? No, but... I think I'm going to since seasickness and all. Yes, because when I grow up, if I have a chance, then I might like take some sailing experience and I might sign up on one ship. So, they said, the trip wasn't all bad. Even though you did all this work out in the rain, you guys still think that it was a pretty fun trip. Yeah. yeah. And why? Um, you got to do some first-time things, like swabbing decks. And that was fun? Yeah. So you're going to go home and swab your floor at home? No. No. Oh, too bad. It was fun because, like, it was new, and then you get to stay overnight and get away from your family for one day. It's plenty hard work for lads and officers alike. But the time moves quickly, and for me, the visible boost in the lads' confidence is worthwhile. At the end of the voyage, the lads from Faria's school learned the sailor's phrase for goodbye is fair winds. Fair winds from Faria! Reporting from Historic Hyde Street Pier... For B-Side, this is Katie Shrek. Report in. Port and starboard carry out. Well, a ship went to sailing out over the bar. Away for Iowa. She's pointed her bow toward the southern star. We're bound for the ride. If you want to know more about the Age of Sail program, check out their website, maritime.org. Tamara's house, things were getting a little tense as we struggled to get our names, or even part of our names, written on rice. This this grain of rice here is cracked, and I think that's going to present some problems later on. What kind of rice are you using? That Jasmine. stuff that came out of your pocket. Well, Tamara, your first mistake is that you didn't pick the longest grain. Look at this little piece of nothing. Here, this is better for your name. 
after about half an hour of dropping the rice, smudging the ink, and just generally making a mess, we found the miracle solution. Okay, I've got a T. It turns out that the best method to write your name on rice is to grab the grain with a pair of tweezers and slowly scratch the letters on with a fine point sharpie marker. You know what? That's not that bad. Technically, all I got out was Tam, but that is that looks like Tam. It really does. I gotta see it. All right, I'm seeing it. Sometimes the simple solutions work best. B-side essayist Claudine Zapp found a simple solution to her little size problem and went from a size two to a size twelve without gaining an ounce. All she had to do was start shopping in the kids section. Little, petite, small-boned, whatever you want to call it, that's what I am. I'm sixty inches tall, just five feet. So when it comes to fashion. I just resign myself to buying clothes I like and hiring a tailor to get rid of the extra fabric. Pants are always a good half a foot too long. Shirt sleeves make me look like I'm playing dress up, and skirts hit at the exact wrong place on my legs. Sure, there is something called a petite section in some stores, but these places always make me feel like the special kids in school who need extra help. It's like some disdainful designer took the most lackluster clothing in the store and shrunk it. Voila, petite. No thanks. It can be a real challenge to find the perfect fit in grown-up size clothing, unless you drop the adult sizes altogether. I realized this when I first ventured into a Gap kids store. Actually, I didn't mean to go to the kids section. I was at a regular Gap, and all of a sudden, the proportions on the clothing started getting smaller and smaller. I felt like Alice in Wonderland after drinking the magic potion. Now. I'm 32 and don't exactly dress like a kid. I haven't even been in the kids section for 20 years, but kids wear these days is a revelation for us shorties. Instead of one small size, there are like 17. Plus, unlike the sad petite section, kids' fashion is funky and hip. But here's the problem: when you're in a kids' store, things are assumed about you. You must be a parent, a kindly relative, a baby shower shopper, but certainly not buying for yourself. The first time I decided I'd actually make a purchase at a kids store, I stood side by side seven-year-olds and their moms and checked out the merchandise: bright colors, stretch fabrics, zippers on sleeves, lots of pockets. I tried on a sweatshirt. Kid size fourteen was too roomy. Size ten a bit tight, but size twelve hit my waist just right. The sleeves didn't go past my hands, and honest to God, perfect fit. I still felt like an intruder in this world. Would it be weird to ask for a dressing room? Would the saleswoman give me a strange look? I didn't want to find out, so I headed to the register to purchase my hoodie. The clerk asked me if I'd like a gift receipt. No, I said I would not, but I didn't have the guts to tell her the two-tone fleece sweatshirt in size twelve, extra large, was for me. Since then, I've grown a bit more brazen and have been raiding the kids' store for more fashion finds. I've bought skirts, tops, even shoes. And I've started using the dressing room, like any club. Act like you belong, and you don't get questioned. Essayist Claudine Zapp lives and shops for small clothes in San Francisco. I'm Mia Lobel, and you're listening to KALX 90.7. Stick around as On the Record flips to the B side.
This month's show is all about little things. When we came up with the idea for this theme, B-side crew member Emily Gunnison immediately thought of premature babies. Oakland Children's Hospital is one of the best facilities in Northern California to care for the tiny infants. And because patients come from all over, the hospital uses volunteers to hold babies whose families are too far away to spend much time at the hospital. Emily visited the preemie ward with one of the hospital's volunteers. Doris Akehole is a 75-year-old retired school teacher. On Wednesday morning, she ends up here at Oakland Children's Hospital, where every week for the past 10 years, she's been coming in to hold babies. A lot of people probably could, wouldn't really want to be there uh, because these, many babies are on what they call the ventilators, machines, and many of the babies have lots of wires attached and tubes attached. But mainly it's just uh, it's a very, very nice feeling to be able to comfort some screaming little child who's, you know, mama isn't here, daddy isn't here. Comfort them and make them calm down and feel better. It's time for Doris to go to work, so she takes me down the hall to the nursery. I'm assigned to two babies that I check on every time I come. In room B, a nurse named Tracy is sitting on a stool holding four-month-old Gabriel. He's leashed to his crib with wire monitors and tubes attached to his head, his heart, and his belly. Nurses call these tubes spaghetti. Most of the babies in the nursery are preemies, so they're assaulted with a slew of problems that come from having to develop outside of the womb instead of in it. Tracy explains some of the problems. The number one thing is the lungs, because the lungs are the last organ to mature. And depending on how small they are, then you're concerned about other parts of their body, like their brain being mature and the blood vessels not being so fine that they could rupture if everything isn't just right. They don't tolerate foods. They have to be on IV fluids for a while until they grow bigger. The eyes even. I mean, it's one of the last things you think about are eyes being mature. And there's more. Jaundice, apnea, anemia, low blood pressure, respiratory stress syndrome, bronchopulmonary dysplasia. All things considered, Gabriel's doing pretty well. He's on his way home today. At the other end of the room, some nurses have just finished tending to another baby who's sleeping on his back in his high crib. He's one of Doris's assigned babies. He can't see, and he's had many problems. He was premature, and so he has bad lungs. You can see he works to breathe. You know, he's a, he's a good baby, sweet baby, Doris and I head over to room C. The lights are brighter over here, and many of the incubators are covered with quilts. It's enough, too much almost, to see one of the tiny infants. But in this room, there are so many. These are the babies Doris doesn't hold, and the nurses and doctors don't hold, except when they have to. These are not the kids whose hands and toes we caress and marvel at because they are miniature, soft-featured versions of ourselves. They are so small that they're hard to look at. It's too much to take in that this minute pink object is a human being. And you see their little chests rise and fall with such force like they know that all they've got to do is keep breathing. I am left to wonder about what happens when these humans, whose weight is measured not in pounds but ounces, go away from here and grow up. When those critical days and months and breaths in an incubator are nothing more than long-ago stories. 
I talked about this with my friend Bruno when he said that he had been a preemie. He was born two months early, and in 1972, he had a 50-50 chance of living. His parents have told him about the first days of his life. The nurses had to come by the incubator every few minutes and reach into the rubber gloves and pinch me or poke me or slap me uh, to get me to cry. And I would, I would breathe. <gasps> and my parents said they had to watch me breathe like that for the first, uh, at least the first week of my life, just crying. And uh, now uh, here I am, 200 pounds, six foot four, athlete, college graduate, uh, fairly well adjusted. <laughs> Babies born two months early are much more likely to survive now than when Bruno was born. And these days, doctors are able to save babies who are three and four months early. But their prospects aren't always bright. A lot of low birth weight kids have trouble in school and suffer permanent nerve damage. Some hospitals are now focusing on these problems. They're trying to create a more nurturing setting for their preemies. They may find that the best medicine is the human touch. For B-Side, I'm Emily Gunnison. Tamara, Emily, and I did the best we could to get our names scrawled out on grains of rice and then decided to get some artful criticism on the streets of Berkeley. We heard there was a guy in town who specializes in writing on rice. We went looking for him on Telegraph Ave. We wandered up and down Telegraph, our rice grains in hand, but we couldn't find the rice man anywhere. Oh no, we've run out of street. Is he definitely on this side? I thought he was definitely on this side. After checking with some other vendors, we found out that the rice writing specialist had gone on vacation to China. So we asked another telegraph artist what he thought of our wares. Well, uh, I can sort of make out the name on some of the smaller grains. What kind of tools were you using? Because that might have something to do with it. Well, this one here was done with a Sharpie, like just a pen. Okay. And this was done like with pen, dipping pen and ink. Which one works best? I'd say this one right here. Which one, one is that? For? Can you read it? Mia. Oh, my god! Thank gosh. you very much. Thank you. Finally, a little bit of encouragement. For some of us, it just takes a little vote of confidence to make it to the pros. For others, all it takes is a little natural talent. B-side crew member Dave Gilson met some local musicians who are well on their way to hitting it big. Since their first record came out three years ago, the Moss Brothers have appeared on MTV, hung out with members of Metallica, and been endorsed by Fender Guitars. That's not bad for a couple of brothers from Piedmont, whose combined age is 29. Dave went backstage to see what all the noise is about. I have to admit, the first time I heard about the Moss Brothers, I was kind of skeptical. The idea of a kid band conjured up images of Menudo, the Jackson 5, and Hanson. I figured these guys were just another bunch of saccharine sweet kids with pushy parents, oversized egos, and platinum record dreams. But I was wrong. I was very wrong. As soon as the Moss Brothers start playing, it's obvious they're not your typical kid band. First of all, they totally rock. Not only are the Moss Brothers great musicians, they're about as down-to-earth as a couple of budding rock stars can be. You'd never guess that they'd just been on MTV's Who Knows the Band, 
or that they've jammed on stage with Spinal Tap. They look and act like normal kids who just happen to have a band. There's Evan, who's 16 and plays the drums, and his younger brother Ruben, who just turned 13. I started playing guitar and Evan was playing drums, so my mom figured that we should start playing together. And so our first gig was uh, a talent show when I was in second grade and he was in fifth. Ruben is the band's singer, songwriter, and at slightly under five feet tall, the band's frontman. I try not to write about girls, because, I mean, I just think that that's just, like, overdone, so I try not to, like, overdo it more. The brothers' latest album, Electricitation, has songs about watching too much TV, being afraid of earthquakes, and more philosophical questions such as, what if heaven got overcrowded? Another is about a cheating scheme gone awry. Told me that you tell me the answers to the test. You said you'd do it just for me. But when I got stuck a lot, you didn't tell me to squat. So it's your fault I got a D. My parents saw my grade and they grounded me. One month, no phone, no friends. I wrote these songs when I was like 11 and 12, and it's a big difference between like 11 and 12 and like 7 and 8. That's why uh, I consider these songs to be a little more complex and like out there. After just two albums and a handful of concerts around the Bay Area, the Moss Brothers have become local cult celebrities. And as Evan explains, they even picked up some loyal fans. When we were coming out of our performance in Sacramento, they like drove by and we were hearing our music blaring in their stereo and I thought that was really cool. When Jason Newstead, the former Metallica bassist and an East Bay native, heard the Moss Brothers, he invited them over to his house. It turned out we got there and he's like, oh, let's go jam. And we like hadn't brought our instruments or in anything, but he has like a whole studio there. So were you guys big Metallica fans before that? Uh, no, not really. I mean, we heard him on the radio. Once we knew Jason, we started listening kind of seriously. So. After that, Newstead played a couple of shows with the brothers and even played on their last album. For the most part, Evan and Ruben seem unfazed by their brush with fame. They admit to being pretty nervous when they first started performing. But otherwise, everything's gone pretty smoothly. Well, almost everything. There was one time that was pretty embarrassing. Do you remember that, Evan? Oh, yes. I completely Are you huge on it? No. Oh, God. Here, you say it, because it was your fault anyway. No! I don't, don't want to say it. What Ruben did is something that most musicians are not ashamed of. While playing a gig on his front lawn, he asked his audience for money. The brothers' embarrassment over this episode shows that, unlike a lot of musicians who say they're in it for the music, the Moss brothers really are in it for the music. If we keep on doing this and it leads up to something big, that's great. I don't know if that will happen or not, and we usually just don't look that far into the future. Reuben and Evan's parents only let them play one gig a month. Their most recent was at Bottom of the Hill, a punk club in San Francisco. I found their mom, Lisa, who attends all their shows, standing in the crowd. I guess they're setting up. I hope he has a pick in his pocket. <laughs> your picks, your earplugs. Do you have to carry extra stuff like uh, that? You know, I actually do. I hate to admit it, but I do. I have an extra pick in my purse. At least I think I do. Might as well check. Maybe now's the time to check. Fortunately, Ruben did have a pick and was spared the embarrassment of having his mom come on stage. He and Evan then proceeded to blow away the crowd. By the time their set was over... It looked like there were a few new moss heads in the mosh pit. They're awesome! I love them. He's going to be something. He's going to be something when he grows up. 
While it's impossible to say what the future holds for the Moss Brothers, Ruben says their next album will probably come out this summer. But first, he has to get around to writing a dozen new songs and finishing the seventh grade. For B-Side, I'm Dave Gilson. That's all for this month's edition of B-Side. Our crew this month is Dave Gilson, Emily Gunnison, Katie Shrout, Claudine Zapp, and Lissa Mudd. Tamara Keith is our senior producer. Our theme music was composed by David Kaufman. Want to learn more about B-Side? Meet the crew and listen to past shows at our website, bside-radio.org. That's B-Side, the letter B, and the word side-radio.org. I'm your host, Mia Lobel.